This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. We're sponsored this week by Decode DC, the podcast that gives you an honest look into how politics affects your life. You got to hear this guy, Jimmy Williams. He's the host of Decode DC, and he's worked for Republicans, for Democrats. He's even been a lobbyist. And he's taking all that experience and explaining how things really work inside and outside of Washington. Decode DC is smart, often surprising, and challenges the conventional wisdom. Now, you know I'm a politics junkie, and I'm a big evangelist for podcasts. This one is one that I've been listening to for a while now, even before they became a sponsor. And one recent episode that I really enjoyed was all about moving day at the White House and what it's really like told by someone who actually survived to tell about it. Did you know that when the presidency changes hands just like it did a week ago— The White House only has five hours between the time the outgoing president leaves for the inauguration and the new president returns from the inaugural parade to get the old president and his entire family and their stuff moved out and the new one completely moved in. Fascinating stuff. There's even an ongoing series on how politics affects the food you eat, from salt to sugar and everything in between. So check it out. I'm a fan and I think you'll really love this one. That's Decode DC, as in District of Columbia, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, enjoy this podcast. Mr. Trump, can I ask you about the the, the U.S. has just concluded an international trade uh, agreement with 11 countries in the Pacific. You've said that ra- you'd rather have no deal yes. than sign the one that's on the table. It's a horrible but most deal. Economists, most economists say that trade has boosted growth, and every single post-war president has supported the expansion of international trade, including the last three Republican presidents. Why would you reverse more than 50 years of U.S. trade policy? The TPP is a horrible deal. It is a deal that is going to lead to nothing but trouble. It's a deal that was designed for China to come in, as they always do, through the back door and totally take advantage of everyone, China in particular, because they're so good. It's the number one abuser of this country. Hey, Gerard, you know, we might want to point out China's not part of this deal. Yeah. True. It's true. That's right. That's right. Before we get a little bit off Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was presidential candidate Donald Trump during a November 2015 Republican debate ranting about his objections to the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal for reasons he didn't understand against a country that wasn't even part of TPP. Never one to be swayed by basic economics, facts, or good sense, Donald Trump, in one of his first acts as president, signed an executive order this week officially withdrawing the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Many Democrats, as well as some Republicans like Senator John McCain, called the withdrawal, quote, a serious mistake that will have lasting consequences for America's economy and our strategic position in the Asia-Pacific region. And he's right. In a staggering display of idiocy, Donald Trump, the same man who shouts at the top of his lungs that America is losing to China, handed China a greater economic and geopolitical victory than they ever could have hoped for. And although it was largely a symbolic gesture, after all, TPP was already dead in the House and the Senate anyway, Trump put the final death nail in the deal that many economists agree would have made America the dominant player in the Pacific Rim. But even more alarming is what this portends for Trump's broader trade agenda, or perhaps I should say anti-trade agenda. In his first week in office, Trump's already uninvited the president of Mexico to the White House, offending our third biggest trade partner. He's stated that he wants to renegotiate NAFTA, sending a signal to our allies that agreements with the U.S. aren't worth the paper they're printed on. And he's threatened countries like China with a 35 percent tariff that would almost certainly start a trade war and send the U.S. economy spiraling into recession. But you don't have to take my word for it. 14 different former chairs of the President's Council of Economic Advisers, Republicans and Democrats, signed a letter calling for passage of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and an embrace of broader free trade policies. And two of them 
will join me on today's podcast to explain the dangers of Trump's isolationist agenda. They're professors Austin Goolsby and Martin Feldstein. Austin Goolsby served as the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors to President Barack Obama, and Martin Feldstein preceded him in that position as chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors under President Ronald Reagan. But one thing that they both agree on is free trade is good for America, and that a return to protectionism would be disastrous for the U.S. economy and our standing in the world. But first, in an interview taped before the election, I talk with the now outgoing U.S. Trade Representative under President Barack Obama, Ambassador Michael Froman. He's the man who negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership on behalf of the U.S., and he discusses what's in the TPP and why the deal was overwhelmingly in the U.S. national interest. Coming up with Austin Goolsby, Martin Feldstein, and Michael Froman in just a moment. Before I could get into the broader benefits of free trade, I wanted to clear up some misconceptions about the much maligned and misunderstood Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. You know, that thing that Donald Trump thought China was in. And for that, I went straight to the source, the man who actually negotiated the TPP, former Deputy National Security Advisor and U.S. Trade Ambassador Michael Froman. I'm joined today by Ambassador Michael Froman. He is the U.S. Trade Representative, which means he's the guy negotiating our trade deals. Uh, there's a lot of fear-mongering in this election that trade is hurting America and other countries are just somehow hoodwinking us in negotiations. <laughs> now, you're the guy who's negotiating for us. You don't exactly strike me as uh, some kind of feckless rube who's just getting taken for a ride here. So to borrow Trump's terminology, are we winning or losing at trade? <laughs> well, look, I think uh, uh, one thing that's absolutely clear, we've got to be at the table leading and helping to set the rules of the road for the system to make sure that they reflect our interests and our values because we're not the only party out there. Uh, China, others, they're negotiating their own trade agreements, and they don't have the kinds of protections we do in ours, whether it's on intellectual property rights or labor issues, environmental issues. We've got to be out there doing that. So when uh, when people are, are, are critical of our trade negotiations, my general view is um, if we're not out there leading, we're ceding that role to others, and that has, cannot be more in the interest of our workers and our firms than us taking that leadership role. The chief accomplishment in your role as trade ambassador for the United States has been the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP. During negotiation, the details of the agreement were not released publicly, which led to a lot of skepticism and conspiratorial thinking uh, in some circles. Can you now tell us what's in the deal and what the TPP does for America? Well, absolutely. First of all, we even during the negotiations, we put out a lot of information, but having completed the negotiation, it's all on the web, every single word of it. And we've put out summaries of every chapter. We've put out fact sheets on every issue. And there's plenty of information out there. We're happy to answer any questions that come up. But this agreement, it's 12 countries representing 40% of the global economy. And what it does is, it, it, by way of, of context, we're already an open economy. Our average applied tariff here, that's the tax that we put on imports, is less than 1.5%. But we face huge tariffs in these other countries. 70% on our autos, 50% right. on our machinery. What TPP does is help level the playing field by eliminating all of those manufactured goods tariffs, by opening other markets to our exports, and then by raising standards in these other countries so that our workers and our ranchers and farmers and businesses here, small businesses, can compete on a level playing field. So we, are, we have labor and environmental laws here. A lot of these other countries don't. This requires them to raise their labor and environmental standards so that we have a more level playing field on which to compete. Everyone's afraid that trade doesn't somehow level the playing field. That sounds like a good deal to me, I guess. Well, it is a good deal. And our workers, we know, can compete and win if the playing field is level. We're 30% more productive than German workers. We're three times as productive as uh, Chinese workers. But we face these obstacles abroad. 
it puts us at a disadvantage. So TPP eliminates those obstacles, raises those standards, and then that gives us a chance to produce things here and sell them all over the world. Among its stated goals, it lists support creation and retention of jobs. Now, that's where trade takes a lot of hits from people. They say that free trade is tantamount to shipping jobs overseas. Uh, what does the TPP do to actually retain and create jobs here in the U.S.? Well, look, I think over the last seven years, coming out of the Great Recession, we've added 14 million private sector jobs in, this, in the U.S., including 900,000 manufactured jobs. That's the, the longest period of manufacturing job creation since the 1960s. And so we know that we can create good jobs here. But if we face these obstacles to other markets, take Vietnam, for example. Vietnam is a country of 90 million people. It's growing 6% a year. It's a poor country, but it's got an emerging middle class, and they want made-in-America products. But if they have a 70% tariff on our autos, our auto companies either have to move there to meet that market need, or we have to eliminate that tariff, and that's what we do in TPP. Does it make us more competitive with China? Well, it does, because uh, it, it, it creates rules of the road for this region that are reflective of our interests and, and our uh, values, and that'll force China to up its game as well. What would you say to those who are afraid of trade and favor high tariffs and this kind of antiquated isolationist approach? Look, I think I think the we live in a global economy and we're going to be living in a global economy. And the question is, how do we shape that so that it's a source of opportunity to us, uh, not a threat? And that's exactly what we're trying to do through these trade agreements. Eliminate barriers to other markets, raise their standards so we have a level playing field so that we can produce here in the United States, send made in America products all over the world. And that allows us to earn better wages here in the United States uh, because we know that export-related jobs pay up to 18% more on average than non-export-related jobs. So our view is, and by the way, we see this in the polls, young people... Uh, they, they tend to be more pro-internationalist. They tend to have passports, more of them. They tend to expect to live or travel abroad more than older Americans. And they see trade as more of an opportunity than a threat. And I think that's very hopeful for the American economy. Yeah, I think millennials get it. They do. And, and, and you, if you're, on, you're online, you're, doing, you're involved in e-commerce, you're downloading apps from around the world, you are already engaged in international trade. And, but a lot of those ability, the, a lot of those issues you shouldn't take for granted because the ability, for example, to download an app and not have it subject to, to customs duties yeah. uh, in a country, uh, you know, that's something we address in TPP, making yeah. sure there's the free flow of data across borders. Without TPP, those sets of rules may not always exist. As I said in the intro, that interview was recorded before the election and before President Donald Trump sealed the fate of the Trans-Pacific Partnership this week. To get a broader idea of what we're missing out on by abandoning TPP, I talked with Ambassador Froman's colleague in the Obama White House, Dr. Austin Goolsby. Austin Goolsby served as the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors to President Barack Obama and as the chief economist at the Economic Recovery Advisory Board. He's been named one of the 100 Global Leaders for Tomorrow by the World Economic Forum, one of the six gurus of the future by the Financial Times, and he topped the New Yorker's list of the most intriguing political personalities of 2010. These days, he's teaching as the Robert P. Gwynn Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. He views the death of TPP with a certain degree of gallows humor, because as you'll hear in a moment, we've been through this all before and it seems we may be destined to make the same terrible mistakes all over again. Austin, Trump's first executive order as president was to withdraw the U.S. from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, nothing technically actually really changes because Congress hadn't approved the deal to begin with. Uh, Austin, is it possible that this is just a symbolic gesture to placate his supporters in the Rust Belt and Perhaps it has no real significance. Uh, I don't think so. You know who they 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 had uh, celebrations broke out throughout China yesterday. Uh, you know as they as the news processed through there they, because China is going to be the big beneficiary of the U.S. not taking part. If by by your question you're asking, do you think he's just saying, oh, I'm not doing TPP, but he's going to plan to expand trade in other ways. 
personally, I hope you're right. But given the people that he's put into various positions and given what he's been saying, I, I really don't think that's right. And I think there's there's even some significant danger that he accidentally starts off with just an old fashioned trade war. Well, even you said at one point, and I'm quoting you here, if you look at these 900 page agreements, they're two pages of what every economist says they want about opening up tariffs, and then 898 pages of loopholes. If that's the case, might the new president have a point that maybe we could stand to be a little less eager to sign these trade agreements and maybe play a little bit of hardball, negotiate more favorable deals? I still think that if you look at trade agreements, there, as I said at that time, they look like the tax code. Yeah. Where <laughs> you, what you would like is let's make the tax code real simple and one page, and here's the rate, and let's be done with it. Uh, as they exist now, they're massively complicated and have a bunch of negotiated settlements like. We will open these markets, but we're only going to open them slowly. And for the first two years, it's only going to apply to, you know, running shoes, but not these other kind of shoes and stuff like that. (laughs) There are plenty of individual things in any trade agreement that that you can look at and say, look, I, I think this these provisions are not good ones. We should change A, B and C. But ultimately, you kind of have to decide are you do you think expanding trade is good for the economy or bad okay so you don't think trump might prove to be the master negotiator he claims to be and uh you know come back with an improved deal huh if what you were telling me was the trump administration has had some kind of thought breakthrough <laughs> of how to reconceive of trade agreements and get more trade and have more benefit to U.S. exporters, I would be the first guy to applaud that. I think that's great. I don't think at all that's what they're proposing. And I challenged both presidential candidate Donald Trump and presidential candidate Donald Trump's entire economic advising team including the people who have gone into the government, like Peter Navarro, Wilbur Ross, etc. When they said that these agreements were heavily against the U.S., uh, and, and Trump had some phrase like, the worst negotiated deal in history or something, I said, name a single provision of the trade agreements that you feel was inadequate, and what would you have said or done differently? And the answer is they did not know any of the provisions of the trade agreements. And so that's my that's kind of my point. If they were conceiving of a way to make the U.S. rich, I would be for it. But what they're proposing is rooted in ignorance, not in fact or in intelligence. I fear he's just repeating a mistake that's been tried hundreds of times by countries all around the world. It's not, it's not a new idea that uh, we're going to try to make ourselves rich by shutting out other people's stuff and try to promote our own. That mercantilist, nativist, isolationist approach has been tried many times. It makes you poor. It doesn't make you rich. Uh, yeah, I'll just give you some examples. There was a time in Brazil where Brazil decided they were sick of the U.S. and other advanced countries making all the computers. So they banned, effectively, all personal computers from the United States in an effort to promote their own domestic production of computers. (laughs) And as a result, there's an entire generation of people in Brazil who never learned to code, who never learned to use software, and you don't see any leadership uh, in technological industries from a wide swath of the, of the Brazilian population. Th- that's the same idea. That it's not as though these these ideas have not been tried. They have been tried. They're proposing things that we have done before and failed. <laughs> and 
so that's why I'm not inclined to say, oh, well, maybe on international trade and trade agreements, Donald Trump is actually a closet genius who has thought through the details <laughs> and he's going to renegotiate the TPP in a better, more favorable way for the United States than the existing one is. He didn't even know who was in the TPP when he was condemning it. <laughs> yeah. In June, you tweeted, Trump was the guy who condemned TPP in the debate because he said China out-negotiated us. You pointed out China isn't even in TPP. And I wasn't the first one to say that. You remember, it was Rand Paul who said, what, what is he talking about? China's not even in it. <laughs> um, and so I kind of think that's the... We we've graduated into a alternative fact universe. <laughs> um, is it possible that not entering into a trade agreement with the other eleven countries in the TPP actually makes us weaker against China, rather than making us stronger? We're creating a vacuum for China to fill. Yeah, not not only is it possible, it's that's absolutely correct. That's why China was thrilled that we did not enter into the TPP. We we have already done it, uh, and th that's what we did because China is going and trying to sign their own version of a Trans-Pacific Partnership with the other economies that are very fast growing there. And even though China isn't a part of the deal right now. Uh, the concern seems to be that China will eventually join TPP and that currency manipulation hasn't been addressed in TPP. Is that a valid issue? There are two different – got two different things in, in that question. One is the, well, yes, China is not in the TPP, but might they become part of the TPP? And the second is should currency manipulation have been put into the lines of the trade agreement itself? On the China joining the TPP – it is China is in many ways in, in many of its big sectors not really a market economy and they got massive state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. They can't join the TPP unless they convert them their economy in wide measure into a free market economy. Now, if China were going to convert itself to a free market economy and give up communism and give up state control over those big enterprises. Um, I don't, that seems inconceivable to me, but if they were going to do that, that would be great for freedom, for the, for the free market, for the world economy as a whole. Uh, so the, the thought that China is going to abandon communism and state owned enterprises in order to get in the TPP is, is a, basically a joke, and you know that's a joke. But if they, if some, by some miracle they would do that, that would be great. Now, on the question of should currency manipulation be in a trade agreement, economists have always had a problem with that because you would have to describe what does it mean to be a currency manipulator, and your monetary policy does affect your currency. So – if you were in a situation like the one we're in now, where the U.S. has been growing pretty steadily, and you have some countries in emerging markets that are absolutely in the dumps, and they're loosening their monetary policy while we're raising interest rates, their currencies will go down in the free market. That's not currency manipulation. That's just what happens when you have some countries growing and some countries shrinking. The currencies will move. And so – I understand the principle that we don't like currency manipulation, and I agree with it. We we shouldn't like currency manipulation. But I don't see how you would put into a trade agreement any enforceable language about currency manipulation because how would you separate it from the country would say, but we're doing really crummy, and you guys are doing well, and that's the only reason our currency is going down. <laughs> You can't take away their their monetary policy, and therefore you can't that, – that's fundamentally not enforceable. Um, is there a TPP without the U.S.? Do the other 11 countries go on without us? I don't know. That's a good question. I know Australia is trying to move ahead with that. Maybe the TPP could proceed on its own. Um, it would be – a TPP heavily dominated by Japan and 
my impression has been that many of the countries in Asia um, wanted to participate in the TPP as a counterbalance to the growing strength and muscle flexing of China um, and that they need the U.S. to do that. My bigger fear for, for the U.S. is, and you've already seen it, you know, China developing alternative institutions that are favorable to China and going and trying to sign those deals, uh, you know, with, with country after country. And, and their sales pitch is the U.S. cannot be trusted. Look at who the president is. Look at the things he said about allies, about trade, about leaving you in the lurch. And if that makes you nervous, then come to us and we'll, we have an offer you can't refuse. Um, that, uh, I, I wish we weren't in that situation, but that's the situation we are in. One thing that confuses me is Donald Trump keeps bringing up tariffs. And as I understood it, tariffs are really kind of a relic of the past. We don't really deal in tariffs anymore. So what is this trade agreement really about? One of the entire points of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was exactly to modernize trade agreements. So one of the biggest problems, Ben, as you know, in in international trade circles is that the old days where the main thing that was happening was tariffs, that's long gone. Most products don't have any tariffs. The bigger issues are things like these national champions where countries in Asia are subsidizing their big domestic uh, enterprises and having those state-owned enterprises or subsidized enterprises go out and compete and be big exporters. So there's a whole major component of the TPP was about that, was about non-tariff barriers and national champions and subsidies and how do you reduce that. Um, and that's actually really important. And it's a terrible shame that we just blew that up. Well, given how quickly he shot down TPP, can we expect NAFTA to get a similar treatment? The irony is the TPP was a renegotiation of NAFTA. Both Canada and Mexico, by signing the TPP, that took precedence over NAFTA. So hopefully all, what they're going to do is incorporate the best parts of the of the TPP into NAFTA. And I think people would be open to that, to looking at that. But I fear that that what the Trump approach uh, is doing is just saying, oh, everybody was stupid and everyone was an idiot and nobody knew what, what they were doing. So if we just threaten or put in tariffs on foreign products, and then simultaneously demand that they give us what we want, otherwise we're going to have these tariffs, they will start a trade war. That's, that's how it works. That's how trade wars begin. And if we stumble and bumble our way into a trade war, uh, shame on us. How stupid would we be to generate a recession for ourselves out of hubris, out of something, uh, uh, I, I, th that just makes me really nervous, and I hope that's not what's going to happen. Well, you just brought up the two words that everyone's afraid of, trade wars. Um, what are the real consequences of the failure of TPP? What could be the worst-case scenario here? I mean, the, there's a five, let's call it a 5% chance of some really grim consequences that this not signing TPP is an indicator that the Trump administration is going to engage in more than just the not signing of things that that we were in the middle of, but but the active uh, imposing of tariffs, imposing of penalties, going after countries, and those countries react negatively, and we spiral into into trade war. I don't I don't think that's likely, but if it were to happen, for sure, that would mean recession in the U.S. The unemployment rates would start rising again. A lot of people would would be thrown out of work. I think realistically not signing TPP is going to mean, A, that the U.S. does not share as much in the bounty of the growth that's taking place in Asia. So 
we're we're just not as rich as we would have been. We're not going to generate the same export uh, based jobs that we that we could have generated. Two, I think you're likely to see a couple of steps more brazen actions by China. They're likely to go sign a series of either bilateral or multilateral trade agreements with the member countries of the TPP that are more in their favor, in which case, uh, when that starts to happen, you will see U.S. exporters up in arms complaining that when they're trying to sell beef to Australia or consumer products, electronics, a whole variety of things, that they're finding that they're being shut out and the contracts are going to the Chinese. In the short run, they're just lost opportunities. And over the medium and longer run, they hasten declines and put our companies in tougher positions. Now, I realize you might be thinking, well, of course, Michael Froman and Austin Goolsby were cheerleaders for TPP. After all, they worked for President Obama, and this was his initiative. But it's worth noting that among the 14 former chairs of the President's Council of Economic Advisors who signed that letter urging passing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, eight of them were Republicans. One of them was Professor Martin Feldstein, who served as the chairman of the council under President Ronald Reagan. He later served as a member of the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board under President George W. Bush and on President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. He's the recipient of the John Bates Clark Medal of the American Economic Association. He serves on the board of directors of the Council on Foreign Relations. And in 2005, he was widely considered a leading candidate to succeed Alan Greenspan as chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. He's the President Emeritus of the National Bureau of Economic Research and the George F. Baker Professor of Economics at Harvard University, where he's influenced an entire generation of economists, including Larry Summers, Lawrence Lindsay, Harvey Rosen, and Glenn Hubbard. Martin Feldstein says, Free trade appeals to the most fundamental Republican free market values, and economic engagement ought to be a conservative imperative. Professor Feldstein, you were one of 14 former chairs of the President's Council of Economic Advisors to both Democrats and Republican presidents who signed a letter calling for renewal of the Trade Promotion Authority to pave the way for the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade Partnership. Based on that, is it fair to say that, at least among economists, there seems to be bipartisan agreement that TPP is a good thing for America? Well, I guess I should say was a good thing or would have been a good thing. But I think I and many others thought that it was a good thing primarily for uh, foreign policy reasons, because it would have sent a strong signal that the United States wanted to engage with the countries uh, bordering the Pacific, and particularly the East Asian countries, and send a signal to China that if it wanted to be part of that group, it was going to have to do a variety of reforms. So it wasn't going to be a big change in trade, uh, but it was going to be a good signal about our political engagement in the region. Is that perhaps part of the problem, is that the opponents of TPP are looking at it purely uh, in terms of the specific trade benefits and not in terms of the big picture in the Pacific? Well, I think that that is a problem, looking back uh, on why it is a serious loss that TPP was allowed to die. Um, but I think uh, Hillary Clinton... Uh, criticized it, said that she couldn't sign on to it the way it was. And uh, Donald Trump, when he was a uh, a candidate, said the same kind of thing, that they didn't, uh, they would want to make changes. Well, you can't make changes when you have more than a dozen other countries that have already passed it through their legislatures. So it was dead. And um, I think all that uh, President Trump did was to shoot a dead horse when he said 
uh, he was taking it off the table for the U.S., but I think it's unfortunate. Yeah, and it's strange to see a Republican president being so adamantly against this. I always thought of free trade as a Republican issue, and now the large part of the opposition in Congress seems to be on the Republican side. Is there a case to be made in favor of TPP and free trade in general from the standpoint of traditional conservative Republican economic principles? Well, set aside TPP because there's no case to be made. It's gone. Right. But in general, I would say yes, uh, that uh, Republicans traditionally had supported free trade. Uh, I have been a supporter of free trade. Uh, Basically, the United States benefits from the fact that our imports are about 15% of our GDP, and those are things that if we tried to produce them here in the U.S. would be more costly. So American consumers come out ahead. Yeah, and Donald Trump loves to cite Ronald Reagan as one of his heroes, and he seems to compare himself to Ronald Reagan a lot. Um, But you, you worked for the man. As far as I recall, Reagan fell pretty firmly on the side of free trade, didn't he? I mean, the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement, um, you know, vetoed quotas. Uh, he, he was, in general, in favor of free trade. On the other hand, uh, he didn't mind the fact that we had strong-armed the Japanese at that time into so-called voluntary uh, export restraints. So... Uh, There was a problem then because Americans were very unhappy about how the Japanese had taken over the market for cars in the United States. And uh, and all the politicians on both sides of the aisle piled in on that anti-Japanese feeling at the time. Just as now there's a similar kind of concern about the Chinese and the fact that It's not cars, but it's just about everything else that seems to be manufactured in China. Well, with regard to TPP and sort of the elephant in the room, which is, of course, China, you've spent your share of time, I believe, in China and are well acquainted with the dynamics at play in the Chinese economy. What will be the impact for the U.S. relative to China now that we are no longer joining the TPP? Well, somehow the Chinese seem to have stepped forward and said, well, they're prepared to be the leader. Well, they can't be the leader on the terms that the TPP um, uh, agreement was designed, because it said things like uh, free trade unions and other things that the Chinese don't have. In fact, those were put in there, in a sense, to by the U.S. to keep the Chinese out of TPP and to make it clear to the Japanese and to others in East Asia that uh, we wanted, we had similar uh, goals and, and similar views about the economy, and so we could partner with them. So I'm not sure how the Chinese, although they've said they're going to replace us in the TPP environment, I don't think that they can literally take over the, um, uh, the, the agreements. So I think the countries of East Asia are going to have to sit down and come up with a new plan uh, that'll be very different from the TPP that we designed. Um, are we perhaps creating a vacuum for China to fill in the Pacific? Uh, Well, they've been doing a very good job uh, even before we uh, (laughs) moved away from TPP. The so-called One Belt, One Road, uh, their uh, strategy of uh, uh, not just trade promotion, but investment uh, throughout the East Asian uh, region and stretching up into um, uh, the area linking East Asia and China with um, uh, the Middle East. I believe I have a quote from you. You wrote that protectionism is never a one-sided affair. Um, Now, the the president has thrown around this idea of 35% tariffs. 
Is it wildly naive for Americans to think that there aren't going to be consequences to this? Well, I don't think that's going to happen. I okay. think during the campaign, he talked about tearing up NAFTA. He talked about 35% tariffs. But in every, whenever he did it, there was always an if in the <laughs> sentence. If I can't get a better deal with Canada and Mexico, I'm going to tear up NAFTA. If countries don't agree to uh, give us a better deal in general, whether it's China or Mexico, we could put 35% tariffs in place. Well, quite apart from the legality issues, there was always that if. So I think um, that this is a negotiating strategy rather than something that he will actually do. We're not going to tear up NAFTA. It's much too important for the American economy. We benefit too much from it. And we're not going to put on 35% uh, uh, tariffs on uh, on imports from countries that we think are. But I think what we will do is use the threat, uh, and he has appointed three people in the trade area, all of whom uh, seem to like the idea of negotiating and trying to get a better deal. Since you brought up Mexico, I believe that you've defended Trump's proposed border tax. Is that not a tariff? And might it not lead to retaliation from Mexico? How is that different? So, so the, the so-called border tax adjustment, which I think is what you're mm-hmm. talking about, really, it's a complicated issue. Its purpose is to raise tax revenue to help finance the corporate tax cut. But it's not really a traditional kind of border tax, because in the process of of putting the border tax adjustment in place, it will lead to a strengthening of the dollar, so that from the point of view of Mexico, say, they would have the ability to export to the United States with increased competitiveness because the dollar would strengthen relative to the peso, and that would balance out the effect of the the extra tax that the border tax adjustment would put in place. So it is not, the border tax adjustment is not about uh, improving our trade balance. It's really about raising tax revenue because we would be taxing uh, imports subsidizing exports. And since we import more than we export, there would be a net gain of revenue, a substantial net gain. In today's size economy, it would be something like $120 billion a year. Okay. And and how might this affect Mexico? Well, Mexico would see a stronger dollar and a weaker peso. And so uh, from a trade point of view, uh, they would say it doesn't disadvantage us. On the other hand, it means that we get less for what we sell to the United States. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, they wouldn't be happy. But basically, the U.S. is an outlier in the world of value-added taxes. We don't have one. Just about every other industrial country does have one. And so we, in effect, are joining that club But we're doing it in a way that avoids putting the whole VAT structure on our domestic economy. We're simply using it uh, at the border. So the Mexicans may not like it, but then they shouldn't like what, what they see in their dealings with Europe or their dealings with other countries that have value-added taxes. Okay. And speaking of Europe, um, Trump has said that he, he would like to negotiate a trade agreement with the U.K., but is, isn't that kind of a drop in the bucket compared to what we're losing with the TPP? And No, I don't think so. I mean, again, TPP was not going to do any substantial amount of good for U.S. exports. Okay. It was really designed to set up certain... Uh, policies and priorities, but it wasn't going to be a significant export uh, promoter. So uh, I think that uh, uh, doing a deal with with Britain and perhaps with other countries would be a good thing for us. Yeah. How about the uh, now defunct transatlantic partnership? <laughs> well, it never really got off the ground. Yeah. No. 
the Europeans didn't want it, we didn't want it, and so it's, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Part of the reason for this um, was not just what happened during the election, not just what Hillary did and what Trump did, but the fact that uh, Obama, although he um, introduced those ideas, he never tried to sell them. He mm-hmm. really didn't uh, exercise himself in trying to promote either TPP or the European equivalent. And, and then at the very last huh. minute, he suddenly started to become engaged. But like everything else, he, he did not like uh, negotiating with the Congress. And so yeah. uh, he wasn't uh, pushing TPP. So you think that if he might have invested a little more political capital, perhaps a little sooner, he might have gotten TPP? He might might well have. If it had happened before we got into the uh, campaigning season, if it had happened a year earlier, I think TPP could have passed because there was a general understanding that from a foreign policy point of view, TPP would be a good thing for the United States. Yeah. Well, I guess the theme of this conversation uh, might be, oh, what might have been. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to me, I guess, speaking in general about free trade before we go, um, to me, it's always seemed like common sense and the most basic economics that the bigger the marketplace, the bigger the prosperity all around. Um, Are people making it more complicated or are they? In a sense, um, didn't want to admit that there were losers in the process. Mm -hmm. That while in in total, the United States is a beneficiary. In total, we have the advantage of importing things at lower cost than we could produce them at home. That increases the real incomes of the American public as a whole. But some people lost jobs, mm-hmm. and we like to gloss over that, we meaning the economics profession, uh, in advocating free trade. And I think we have to face up to the fact that, yes, there are going to be losers in that, but those losses of, of certain kinds of jobs are, I think, less important, less significant than the losses that occurred because of changing technology. Mm-hmm. But you can't politically campaign against technology, so you campaign against foreign producers. There are plenty of old saws that apply here. One's about throwing out the baby with the bathwater or not cutting off your nose to spite your face. But Austin Goolsby's favorite analogy for bad trade policy goes back to an incident from his childhood. I make the analogy to a time when my aunt made a lasagna that wasn't wasn't as that good and they ended up stuffing it down the sink where it clogged a drain at at my aunt and uncle's place and which was in Lubbock and so my uncle goes out and gets the thing and they, they no longer sell it it was called the bomb and it was kind of a combination of a plunger and a firearm and it had a co2 cartridge in it and you set that thing in the drain and you blew the clog out and they lived in in what we would call a converted that is it was a little house with a wall down the middle and there were two identical apartments on each side so my uncle goes down to the store gets the bomb sticks it in the drain, (laughs) he blows the clog out of there. And every time he fired it, it didn't send it down into the sewer. It just blew it over into the sink of their neighbor. And so the next day, those people come over, they're like, was there some kind of a plumbing disaster that took place? And they come to look, and all my aunt's lasagna is now blown all over the ceiling and walls of the kitchen of the of the neighboring apartment. <laughs> and that is what's wrong with the protectionist mentality: is you say, "Yes, we're gonna we're gonna block out foreign steel, and that's gonna help the U.S. steel company." Okay, but there are five times as many jobs who are buying the steel and using it to make U.S. autos or using it to, to do other things. And all of those people just pay higher prices and they fire people. And the number of people that end up getting fired in the spillovers well exceeds the number of jobs that you think you're saving on the upside. Mm-hmm. And 
the argument that that's going to generate more jobs in the home country, you know, of the U.S. because you're shutting out the foreign competition has not proved true. This isn't a new idea. This has been done many times by many countries, including the United States. And when it has done so, it has failed. And the reason that we don't have those tariffs now is because when we tried the tariffs, people realized, wait a minute, this isn't working. It's not generating more jobs. And I just think we got to think that through before we act. Well, from your mouth to Trump's ears, Austin Goolsby, thanks so much for talking to me. (laughs) It's my pleasure, Ben, anytime. As Austin points out, isolationism is almost never a good idea. There will inevitably be some people who get left behind in free trade. But in many cases, they are as much victims of their own refusal to adapt as they may be victims of any sweeping trade policy. We live in a democracy. And in a democracy, economic and trade policy, or any policy really, should seek to do the most good for the most people. Donald Trump loves to see the world in terms of winners and losers. Well, free trade is a resounding win for America. It's not even close. There's no debate about it. History has borne it out time and time again. Donald Trump wants to go back in time. But we can't afford to revert back to antiquated trade policies from the 20th and even 19th centuries. And now more than ever, as technology is bringing strangers from across the world together, and we have greater access than ever before, the winners in this century will be the nations and the individuals who are most connected. And Americans would be fools to sit on the sidelines. Thanks again to Ambassador Michael Froman and Professors Austin Goolsby and Martin Feldstein for joining me on the show. Follow Michael Froman on Twitter at at Mike Froman and Austin Goolsby at at Austin underscore Goolsby. By the way, Austin spelled with an A. And Martin Feldstein politely abstains from Twitter, but you can read many of his articles about economics at nber.org backslash Feldstein. That's F-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. Or go to harvard.edu and type Martin Feldstein in the search box. Austin Goolsby is a partner at 32advisors.com and you can read some of his research and articles at faculty.chicagobooth.edu slash austin.goolsby. Don't forget to take our listener survey so we can keep the show free and find advertisers who are best matched to you, our listeners. Just take five minutes to go to podsurvey.com slash kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register for that $100 Amazon gift card giveaway. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. You can like Kick-Ass News on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics. And please be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews, or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, And thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc., 